0: The Culture Guy Podcast, Episode Five. <music> Today with a guest that most of you in the cross-cultural field know really well. At least you've heard the name before. to the next episode of the Culture Guy podcast. This is episode five. And today we're talking to Andy Molensky who is the author of Global Dexterity. Some of you may have read the book. Some of you, like myself, are working with the book as a resource in the cross-cultural field. Andy has been one of the people that i value quite a bit in this field because he knows what he's talking about he comes from the research field he comes from applied research so he's not just writing about it in theory he's walked the walk before he did the talk so welcome again another episode of the culture guy podcast this is the first episode of the year 2016 and again, um, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Culture Guy, uh, the Culture Guy podcast, is the show dedicated to all of you who are passionate about cultures and how culture influences everything we do—the way we talk, the way we listen, the way we act or react, the way we feel, and the way we see the world. This show is a place for you to connect and engage with people from around the world who care about cultural understanding, making meaningful global connections and fostering diversity. Together on this program and out there in the field, we will learn how culture shapes all of our behaviors and how we can inspire motivate and lead and even communicate better across cultures i'm your host christian hooverle most people call me the culture guy because that's what i do and i invite you to join me on my journey on our journey to becoming agents of peace because as i've said many times before in this program i am a strong believer that together we will make this world a more peaceful place by helping people from different cultures understand each other better. That's what we're about, work together better across cultures. You found us through Stitcher, through iTunes, through Google, I don't know how you found us, I'm glad you're here. If you wanna connect with me, the culture guy, and um, the services that we provide, you go either on Twitter and find us at Hufele, which is my last name, so it's at H O E F E R L E. You can find me on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash The Culture Guy. You can also find my company Twitter handle, which is The Culture Mastery. And that also leads you to my website, which is TheCultureMastery.com. As you can see, there are many ways that lead to Rome and many ways that lead to The Culture Guy and The Culture Mastery. Today is, as I said, the first episode in the new year, and what better way to remind you that I have a standing offer for you. I talked about it on the last episode. There is a book coming out this spring called Pivot. It's by my friend and mentor Adam Markell, and it's about making these little adjustments in our lives that lead us to our goals, to our big dreams. Um, There doesn't have to be the huge fundamental seismic shift in our lives to to get to our goals, to get to our dreams. It's often just a tight five-degree angle change in what we do, a pivot to to get us to where we want to be. And Adam wrote a book about this, so what I would invite you to do is either follow me on Twitter and see the links that I'm posting around Pivot, or even better yet, just go on my blog, it's theculturemastery.com forward slash blog, and you'll see the article about the perfect year 2016 and the gift that I have for you. All you do is you just click on the link in the article and it'll lead you to the pre-sale page of that book. You get the book for free. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. All you do is take care of shipping and handling. Simon & Schuster will send you the book once it's printed. You'll be the first ones to get it even before it hits the bookshelves. Now, how does that sound? I think that would be amazing. Go get it. And, well, I'll give you a few seconds to check it out. The forward slash blog. You'll find it there. And in the meantime, let me find the next topic for you guys. like to make aware or make you aware of that the Institute for Intercultural Communication is holding their Winter Institute Workshops. Institute Workshop schedule starts on March 7th, and the program will go through March 10th. There are three-day courses available, and there are also uh, two-day, uh, I think one-day courses. Available. And you can find that on intercultural.org. That's .org forward slash w i i c dot html and don't worry i'll post the um the link to that in the show notes so you should be easy you should be able to find that easily It's the um, Institute for Intercultural Communication holding their winter schedule and let me look it up on the website before I send you there. So March 7 through 10, uh, three-day workshops and a one-day workshop, that's what it is. Um, instructors will be Donner Stringer, Janet Bennett, uh, Tatjana Fertelmeister. Oh, you don't want to miss her. She was my instructor for the Cultural Detective. So Tatjana is going to teach there. Amer Ahmed, Darla Dierdorf, um Andy Reynolds, Mick Vandenberg. Uh, so there's a ton of good instructors. Intercultural Communication Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, the winter. The winter workshops, the three-day courses will cost um, 1160 US dollars. The one-day workshop is 425 and the location will be, uh, you should know where it is, right? It's going to be held at Wake Forest University uh, Charlotte Center. It's um, in Charlotte, North Carolina on the, well, near the east coast of the United States. So if you're in North America, if you want to improve your skill set, in the intercultural field, go check out intercultural.org forward slash wiic.html. And we are back with our guest for episode five. It's, as I said earlier, it's Mr. Andy Molensky. So without further ado, let's listen to what the master of global dexterity has to tell us. precisely Professor Andy Molinsky, who teaches at Brandeis University in Boston, Massachusetts, and who is the author of the well-known book, Global Dexterity. Andy, welcome on the program. I'm so glad to have you on. Thanks, Christian. I'm happy to be here. Um, so am I. I'm really happy that you're here because, as you know and as some of my my colleagues and friends know, I've gotten to know you or found you quote unquote because I saw your book and before I saw your book Global Dexterity I saw your tweets about your book which uh, to all of you out there who are still debating the value and the ROI of social media I happened to find Andy Molinsky because his tweets were engaging and then he started tweeting about his upcoming book and I thought, wow, I need to read this. And then I did and then I responded to what she wrote and we engaged and one thing led to the other and now we're here. Um, So Global Dexterity, that came out in, help me, Uh, 2013?
1: 2013, yeah.
0: And it's, do you know how many copies it sold since?
1: Uh, to be honest, I am not entirely sure. Okay, uh, but it's it's doing it's doing well, I think, and it's it's got I've gotten such great feedback from people around the globe. It's very exciting to get uh, tweets and uh, LinkedIn messages and emails. So it's it's been in it's it's really been fun.
0: Who? What is Global Dictionary for those for those of our listeners who have no idea what that book is about? Um, in what, what are the cliff notes?
1: Yeah. So global dexterity is, is about acting outside your comfort, your cultural comfort zone. So it's adapting to a foreign culture, but without losing yourself in the process. Most books on culture focus on cultural differences, which obviously is important when you're going across cultures. But that's really only the first part of being effective and successful across cultures. You need to learn to adapt and adjust your behavior in light of the differences that you experience. And that's what global dexterity does. Mm, great. There,
0: there's one that there's one uh, term technical term that you use throughout the book and that i've shamelessly adopted in in our cultural training programs um and 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 thank you by the way for giving me and lots of us in our profession give giving us some some additional arrows in our work quivers um you talk about the zone of appropriateness, which makes cultural adjustment, um, a, a little more bearable for those who see it as a daunting task. Would, would you care to explain what you mean by zone of appropriateness?
1: Sure. That's just, that's think about if, um, if any of you out there have ever, uh, um, uh, seen or, uh, done archery where you're shooting at an archery target, I think a lot of people, like with a bow and arrow, I think a lot of people when they think about culture, you know, you heard the expression, when in Rome act like the Romans, people think, oh gosh, I, I, if I'm going to be in a new culture, I have to hit that bullseye of the archery target. I have to act exactly like the Romans. I have to really mimic the behavior in a new culture. But I think the reality is, is that in most, in most cultures and in most situations, not all, but in most situations, there's a range a zone of appropriateness in in a given culture and and the trick is to find some place in that zone where you can uh, feel authentic, feel yourself but at the same time act effectively in whatever situation you're in. That's that's the art, Uh, that's the art piece of cultural adaptation. I think that's why people like you Christian and others who do the cross-cultural training work are so important to help clients and work with clients and helping them find uh, that intersection between their comfort zone and the zone of appropriateness.
0: Nice. And so that means there is not always one one right or one perfect. There's not that, that one perfect ten that you always have to hit. It's okay to to get close.
1: Absolutely. It's okay to get close. And oftentimes there is no perfect ten. There's a range. There's a there's a, a set of ways that you can act that can be effective or appropriate. And and you just need to experiment. You need to get insight uh, from someone like you who's who could be a cultural mentor, coach and then experiment to watch what others do to incorporate elements of their behavior into yours to create your own unique version of the behavior of course you still need to be appropriate and effective but i think people underestimate the extent to which you can actually still feel yourself
0: mhm so it could be could be like a dance where you keep stepping on each other's toes once in a while and and, and people when they start dancing together they probably expect to to be stepped on not because people are ill meaning or they want to hurt you but because they aren't in sync yet or they don't know these steps exactly yet but it with more and more practice they will get it right and the the toe stepping will get less and less right
1: yeah i'm a terrible
0: dancer so yeah so am (laughs) i (laughs) but i had to throw that in my wife will love that (laughs) um so how, how how did you get into this field? Have, have, what has been your personal or professional experience with, with crossing cultures and, and what did you learn from it?
1: So I, I uh, <clears throat> when I was in college in the United States, so I am from the United States original originally. Um, and when I was in college, I was, I had some wanderlust. I wanted to experience the world. I'd never traveled much, you know, and, and frankly, you know, this was, Obviously, before the days of of what we're doing right now, which is a Skype call. Mm-hmm. Um, it was before uh, email even uh, so I, I I really didn't have as much exposure uh, to the world. I hadn't traveled much. I wanted to do something i i so I, so I went abroad when I was uh, in college. I went to Spain and I lived with a family in Spain, and it was a tremendously eye-opening experience for me. Every element of it, stepping on a plane by myself. Without my family, uh, crossing the ocean <laughs> at that age to me it was just—I mean, almost like jumping off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I got there, of course, my language was, you know, minimal, frankly. And so that whole experience was just fascinating to me. It was eye-opening, and and, and, and it 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 oriented my interests toward this idea of crossing cultures and. I, it wet my appetite as well, and so after I graduated from college, I went um, soon after to France. I Actually, I had traveled to France when I was in Spain. I thought, oh my gosh, this is Paris in particular, this is like the most beautiful city I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I said, I want to go here. And so I figured out a way to go, and I worked, I found a job with a small company there, Um, and I didn't love the the, the work I was doing so much, probably because I was just an intern, but or not an intern, I don't know if I was officially an intern, but fairly low level. But I was fascinated about what was happening in the office, all the intercultural dynamics I had never studied anything like this before. I had never really experienced anything like this before, but I just found it, found it so fascinating. I was keeping a diary every day at work about my intercultural experiences. When I went back to the United States after this, I said, I said to myself, I have to, I have to study this. I have to learn more about this. And that, That's what drew me to a PhD program uh, in, uh, in organizational behavior. That's what drove me to want to study. Ah, uh, the challenges people face in adapting and adjusting their behavior across cultures, and I should also say one more thing. Uh, when I was in my graduate program, I decided to uh, volunteer as I was work- as I was studying and in-, in writing my dissertation. I volunteered at a resettlement agency in Boston, Massachusetts where immigrant professionals from around the world, actually at that time mostly the former Soviet Union, were coming to the United States and they were trying to adapt their behavior especially to the US job market. And so I had just been abroad twice and now I was helping coach and work with people who were coming to the United States from abroad so I was seeing it from both perspectives and that I think is really where I got the interest in this idea of global dexterity.
0: Mm, Nice. And you mentioned something that many of us who travel and live between or across cultures have, have, have had similar experiences I think. Once you go away from home and you're like the fish out of the proverbial water you're in somebody else's pond and you see different things your your perspective your view of the world changes and once you come back in your in your native waters you realize that you see the world with Different eyes. It was different than it was before. It's the Marcel Proust uh, type of experience that we don't. We see the world with different eyes. It's it's not just to see different things. It's it's changing our perspectives. And that we are drawn to those who are foreign, just like we were once, because now we have the experience. We know what the stranger, the foreigner, the otherness people, what they're experiencing now that they're fish out of water, and we can be very helpful to those. Um, I'd be interested in some of your journal entries. Um, What were some of the the fool moments you had while you were in Spain and France? I'm sure you stepped on a few people's toes as an inexperienced traveler between cultures. Are you open to sharing some of your your gaffes, your mistakes, your your f- cultural fool moments.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I I remember uh well, this wasn't when I was in France, but when I was in Spain, I remember dressing in shorts everywhere. Mm. Take, taking the subway in Spain, and this was in the early uh actually 1989. Uh and I I remember the looks that I got from a lot of like older women on the subway wearing shorts <laughs> and t-shirt. Oh my god. Uh, incredibly inappropriate that was. Um, I in France, I I don't know about gaffes. As I'm sure I made plenty of gaffes, but I remember, I remember you know the whole. It's a bit superficial, but it still was very interesting. The idea of you know kissing on the cheeks and how when you entered a party and like an informal get together in France, you had to. I, I it seemed to be the the idea that you needed to say hello to everybody, mm-hmm. uh, kissing many of them. And then then when you leave, you had to say goodbye to everybody. And in the United States, I remember uh um you know if, if if I would leave a party I would just sort of like maybe say goodbye to the one person I had talked to the most and just leave. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like it was little things like that were just so, you know, fascinating to me. And then of course at the workplace there were so many uh differences. Um I felt like, you know, the the arguments that I saw uh in meetings that just simply wouldn't have happened in the United States, the extent to which the French were just really arguing in a way that I that, that almost made me cringe as an American. Uh, but but I but I soon you know got to realize that it really was just the style as opposed to anything uh, deeper than that. Um, I had so many interesting experiences and observations that it 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 just fascinated me.
0: That that that's a, a good point that you bring up there because that happens quite a bit in in with many of my clients that I work with the the style of conversation the the art of arguing so to say which tends to be significantly different in north america to compared to central europe the french are in that regard rather similar to the germans as they as they find confrontation okay in the right business context. Confrontation, to a certain extent, if it does not uh, violate the personal space or the personal sphere, if it doesn't attack the individual, just if if the confrontation is around the task, more of a kind of uh, going by the philosophers, the German and French philosophers, Descartes and Kant and Hegel, who were always, well, more dialectic in their approach, and it 's okay to have a different opinion and For I find that many Americans North Americans find that hard to deal with. was that something you struggled with the adjustment to this kind of confrontational argumentation
1: well, at that point, I was so young in the in the organization that I, it was, I was more a fly in the wall I was an observer to it, and I, but I was still cringing, even though i wasn 't involved in those high level conversations. <laughs> but uh, I know I have a lot of uh, people I work with now where I see this absolutely as an issue, both in meetings, but also, you know, in, uh, you know, let's say giving feedback, for instance, Mm -hmm. Germans, the Germans might give uh, pretty frank and direct feedback, and from an American perspective, when we're used to the feedback sandwich where you stroke someone's ego multiple times before giving anyone any negative feedback, it can be pretty jarring.
0: What do you tell somebody that comes from a cold feedback culture like the german-speaking world and that includes Austria and and parts of of switzerland and or even the 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 dutch and the danish who are are not shy to give frank feedback or the people from israel um what do you tell those people if they have to interact professionally with uh, people from north america and and have to give feedback in a in a company environment how do they adjust their zone of appropriateness when being straightforward is a value where they come from.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean I think I think one big difference is whether it occurs in the context of a relationship or not. You know, when it's when something like this is in the context of a relationship, I think the, the, the two people if it's two people can ideally actually even laugh about it <laughs> or kind of like step back, step aside and sort of notice the cultural difference. And then it can be an opportunity for learning and perhaps even a deepening of the connection of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's very different when it happens in that context versus a context where it's less of a relationship. Um, in that context, uh, the the advice that I've, I've given uh, people uh, is 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 to um, first of all understand the Ameri- the logic of both perspectives from the point of view of those cultures. So understand the logic of the German perspective, which is that it's efficient, it's honest to be giving this feedback, right? Um, uh, versus the American uh, perspective, let's say, where um, where where it doesn't make me feel good. Uh, and um, and it's it might be considered rude and that we want to stroke people's egos because we want to um, because that's a tool for motivation maybe, that, that we want to make people feel good and that, that we believe that that will help motivate them and feel connected and engaged and, and, uh, and, 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 and willing to work harder for us, put that extra effort out. So I think that understanding those multiple perspectives is really important and then I've found that the Germans that I've worked with or spoken with Oftentimes, or or people actually in Israeli I I worked with, um, they can find a way to tone it down a little bit, Mm -hmm. to 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 not lose themselves completely, you know, in a stereotypical way, like someone like having to say, "Oh, you did such a fabulous job," you know, like I mean, that's that's almost like completely disingenuous and, Mm -hmm. and inauthentic. But you know, you can tone it down a little bit find some way to say something positive that still feels honest to you. You know, there are ways around it, I think. Um, But – and sometimes, by the way, it's just a slight change or a slight wording change that makes all the difference in the world. But being aware is the critical first step, I think.
0: Mm. How do you teach that um, in in Boston at Brandeis? How do you teach your students to – become aware of their own behavioral preferences because i think the self-awareness piece can sometimes be the hardest because it's so easy to to recognize the difference in behavior but not everybody who grows up in in their monocultural world is is able to to compare that to their own uh, home base so to say their their own benchmark of what is it i like what's the behavior i prefer who am i
1: how do you yeah, teach so,
0: that?
1: yeah, so yeah, so it's interesting you say that because I'm right in the middle of teaching it. So I'm, I teach I I've created an MBA course uh, on global dexterity following the logic of my book, and um and what I do in that course is that everyone needs to choose a situation. Now, by the way, I should also mention that about 90 percent of my students are foreign born MBA students. So uh-huh. there, I have I have students from. Let's see. This semester, I have students from China, from Taiwan, from Korea, from Japan, from Brazil, uh, from uh, Latin America, other countries in Latin America. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if I have any European students this semester. I have a student from Armenia, not Europe, but mm-hmm. um, you know. In, in other semesters, it's 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 different. I've I've got oh, I have a Dutch student this semester. So I've got you know plenty of students from all around the world, and 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 um. And what they need to do is they need to choose a situation that's outside their comfort zone, their cultural comfort zone. So, for example, uh, a student might choose a situation of um, making small talk with strangers. That, in many cultures, is something that they would not be accustomed to doing. Uh, Whereas in the United States, it's kind of a critical thing to do. Like, you walk into a meeting, let's say, of of people who you don't know that well, and you and that other person are the only people in the room, at least at 9 o'clock. Do you stop and make small talk with them, or do you sort of ignore them? Uh, and, you know, in a lot of cases, the people want to be able to do it so that they can expand their network, but it's very difficult for them. So the point is is that they have to choose a situation, whether it's making small talk with a stranger or promoting themselves in a networking event or giving feedback or whatever it is. And then they have to do what, what I call diagnose the cultural code, and that's, that gets to your question. Mm-hmm. Um, they find a mentor. They need to get a mentor to help them, a coach, a cultural coach, if you will, and they use the tools in my book to try to understand what the cultural code is for the United States and how that differs from the cultural code of their culture, and that helps them pinpoint in a pretty strategic way where the gaps are for them, and then, of course, this is the catch. They have to then go off and actually do this situation multiple times Hmm. during the semester, and each time they write. A, a sort of a detailed self-reflective diary entry about their experience and so and then we bring that back into class and we apply the tools from the book to their experience and then they go off and do it and then they come back it's, it's very similar probably to some of the coaching that you do mm-hmm. um, uh, but but in, in sort of a larger group format
0: nice do people are people able to access this uh, decoding or, uh, or the, the self-assessment online or is, is that only in the book is, is there a way to to access that
1: Uh, It's in the book. Um, I've created an interactive tool on Harvard Business Review that gets at a little bit of it as well, and that's available on Harvard Business Review. But I think the book is probably the best way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do have plenty of blogs that I've written, uh, and there have also been other articles um, that you can access through my Twitter feed or through LinkedIn um, that get at elements of it as well.
0: Well, then I will just go ahead and post the link to that harvard business review page on, on in the show notes So if you listen to this go to the show notes and you'll see a link to that you should also see a link to andy's twitter handle and his his linkedin profile because some of you will notice that on hbr you have to have an account to access all the data and andy is kind enough to share some of his articles at least in abbreviated form on his linkedin profile so if you want access to that um go to the show notes find that you'll also find two articles that andy was kind enough to let me co-author with him so thank you again for for letting me be part of of your publishing experience um i have another question about your the time that you were helping people coming to the Boston area from Eastern Europe. And given your last name, Molinsky, it does sound of Slavic descent. um, Uh, Where's your family from?
1: Originally, my family, well, that portion of my family was from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But I don't, you know, that was many, many decades, you know, many generations ago. So I didn't, it was a bit of a coincidence that the people I was helping were from the former Soviet Union. Although I did actually take uh, Russian in college. Hmm. Uh, so I studied a couple of years of Russian in college. Uh, I could speak a little bit, not well enough to to be fluent, but I certainly could speak a, uh, well enough to make a little connection with them. Um, and it was a bit of a, you know, I think it was a bit of coincidence that, it, that at that time, that's where most of the immigrant professionals were coming from. Nowadays, if you go to the same organization in Boston, I think you'll find a very different population, I'm mm-hmm. guessing.
0: Well, did it help that people gravitate to you, or did did it help in the rapport building that, once they got to know you, they they thought, oh, that's that's one of us. He doesn't speak our language, but at least he she he has the same historic origin.
1: It's hard to tell. I would guess not. Okay. Um, I would guess not. I think I think um, I think what was most important was whether I could help them. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And how yeah. how does that you've you've done a lot of corporate work too right yes so how would you describe that being on the nonprofit slash humanitarian side of cross cultural adjustment versus doing it in a corporate setting?
1: I think time's a big issue. I think that that folks in the nonprofit world, especially these immigrant professionals, they have a lot of time uh, to to, to, to re- try to master this. They also, versus in a corporate setting, oftentimes uh, I'm, I'm brought in, I do a lot of keynote talks in, in corporate settings, virtually and also in person, of course, um, and I do some trainings as well, but I find in corporate settings, oftentimes people in corporate settings don't feel that they have the, 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 the time or they don't feel like they can spare the time, so they want sort of a quick hit. Yep. type of t- type of help and you know in the end I think that's better than nothing but it's but it's it's probably in, in the end not not ideally what the person needs whereas in the world of working with immigrant professionals those folks don't want a quick hit they want the real thing and furthermore they 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 need these skills to find a job to support their family right <laughs> i mean yes. there's 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 motivation in some cases bordering on desperation
0: mm-hmm. So there's there's a I'm assuming and I'm, I'm correct me if I'm wrong but I think working with with immigrants or with refugees is, is a is a very rewarding work because you not only do you spend more time with them than you would probably with with corporate clients but also you see what impact you can have on on their lives right
1: Yeah, in the best of circumstances it is but you know it's it's um. It's hard. you know, you, you want to be able to impact people's lives and help them. Um, I, th- I think language, by the way, in the immigrant population becomes a very big issue as well um, because it's not just culture, it's language. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with corporate clients, Oftentimes foreign born corporate clients, even you know, the people who are at the level that they're getting a high level professional job, white collar job, their English is probably pretty pretty good. Or if you're talking about Americans going abroad, that's it's a very easy way of communicating. But if I'm talking about an immigrant professional who just moved here two months ago from, you know, wherever their English could be very poor, and that's mm-hmm. an added uh, challenge, naturally occurring challenge that you get in that population more so than others. So, you know, it's it's very rewarding work. I I I, I um I, I really I really enjoy doing it. Um, it. It's it's interesting how the challenges that that population experiences are very similar to the challenges that corporate clients experience i mean i've worked across the board i've worked with 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 executives i've worked with managers i've worked with employees i've worked with mba students undergraduate students um and and the immigrant professionals we're talking about
0: mm-hmm. given all your years of expertise in this area and, and having seen student generations move through your classroom and having worked with corporations do you see that the Uh, the mindset in North America towards uh, cultural competency has been changing do you think there is an increased awareness now within the US that uh, cultural competency is not just one of those fuzzy soft skills it's actually sometimes mission critical for global business success Has, has there been a change you think
1: Yes, absolutely. I think people are, people are companies and individuals and companies are realizing it's critical. And there's a lot, you'll see on the internet even, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, um, chatter about it, I'd say. But in terms of, in terms of concrete steps, uh, I think that the, that the actual action and the behavior is lagging behind the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think companies often, I mean, this is something that I've noticed actually, is that, um, is that I've worked with some companies who are almost ashamed of how non-global they are. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, which to me, to me, I think, indicates that that going global and and, and having this sort of level of cross-cultural uh, and global fluency is something people are recognizing, although the reality of their skills and abilities and perhaps even their willingness to invest is lagging behind a little bit.
0: Okay. So lots of work for us to do in the future then, I guess.
1: Absolutely.
0: Andy, it's been a true pleasure having you on today. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for all the, the nuggets you were able to share with our audience. How do people engage with you? How do people find you out there?
1: Uh, Twitter is a great way. Um, at Andy Molinsky, um, that that's a that's a great way. LinkedIn as well. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. So those those are
0: probably the two best ways. And Andy Molinsky, the Twitter handle is A N D Y. Correct. It's not A N D I E or something. It's A N D Y M O L I N S K Y um do follow andy he will i'm I'm just putting that out there you will follow back um and he's sharing some some very valuable stuff uh, for for those of us in the field go get his book global dexterity um it is available on amazon and all the other um mail order outlets what's the publisher andy
1: Uh, Harvard Business Review Press, the same people who do Harvard Business Review.
0: Well, there you go. If that's not a legitimate source, then I don't know what is. Andy, thank you so much for being on the program. I know we will talk again soon, maybe on this program again. When your next book comes out, we can expect that to hit the shelves in, what is it, 2016, 17? That's right, and I I look forward to it. This is fun. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you so much, and... Talk to you again soon and watch out for all these new Twitter followers coming to you from around the world.
1: Oh I I, I welcome them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Take care. Bye. If you haven't read Global Dexterity yet, it's time to get the book. You'll see in the show notes there is a link to Amazon. I'm not partial to any of these um, online stores. It's just the one that people know best. Global Dexterity by Andy Molinsky has become one of the, for me at least, one of the the cornerstones of contemporary cross-cultural literature. In the field, there's others out there certainly, and we will certainly discuss some of those in the near future. I have a few of those on my list for the guests of the show. Just stay tuned. Also, quick reminder: Andy Molinsky is on Twitter at Andy Molinsky. Simple, and you'll find him on LinkedIn you'll see the link to his profile in the show notes. And, of course, you find us, or me, the Culture Guy, on Twitter, at Höferle, at H-O-E-F-E-R-L-E. And you'll see all the other relative links in the show notes. Don't forget to check out the article Um, with a pivot book Uh, the article is called a gift for those who want an amazing 2016 it's on the block can't miss it get the book it's free and lastly but not leastly remember the Intercultural Communication Institute is having their winter workshops in Charlotte North Carolina from March 7 through 10 You want to sign up now? It's at Wake Forest University. And the link to register and find out what the courses are is intercultural.org. All right, this concludes episode five of the Culture Guy podcast, the first episode of 2016. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something out of it. As always, I enjoy your feedback. I respect and appreciate your feedback because without you, dear listeners, I'm doing this for nobody, right? Which is certainly not the case. So what I want you to do, or what I would ask you to do is send me feedback. Send me an email at get started at the again email is get started at You can certainly tweet or direct message me either on Twitter or Facebook or on LinkedIn Or you can call me. Either way, we enjoy, I enjoy your feedback. Um, I want to hear how um, you can contribute to this program. I want to hear how I can assist your endeavors in the cross-cultural and intercultural field. Let's work together. We, we'll make it, as I said earlier, we'll make the world a better place. We'll make it more peaceful. We will be agents of peace if we understand each other's culture better. And if we collaborate, this is at least my modus operandi, I'm all for collaboration. So let me know if you want to be a guest on the show. Let me know if you know somebody who should be on this program. And let's take take it to the next level. The Culture Guy podcast, episode five. And I'll talk to you and you will hear from me again next time. Bye-bye.